got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke this morning. That's in the New Testament. If you can find Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I hear there are some free Bibles in the back at the community groups uh, table. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, uh, I think they'll give one to you free as a gift. So uh, grab one of those uh, on your way out today. Um, it, it's extremely... Um, Good to be with you guys for this weekend. Um, I want to introduce my family to you. So my name is Ethan. I'm Ethan Welch. Um, I am raising currently a tribe of females. So uh, I'm married to my lovely wife, Ashley. And then we have uh, two little girls. Um, Nora is our oldest. She's two years old. She is, she is all over everything. I mean, she, she's just like running around the house like crazy. And then we've got um, a five-month-old Harper. So that's, that's my lovely family right there. Unfortunately, they couldn't travel with me. Uh, they're back at home, back in Raleigh, where apparently it's below freezing as well. I don't know what is going on with the storm, but uh, they couldn't travel with me. But that, that's my family. Um, I'm really grateful to be here at City Church. I've got uh, quite a history with, with Trevor over the past a uh, few years. Interestingly enough, I, um, I kind of have to give credit to Trevor for my marriage, for actually being married to Ashley. So as the story goes, uh, it was November 8, 2007. It was a Thursday night. It was it was cold, uh, but uh, there was, it was a Bible study that Trevor was actually leading in Durham, North Carolina, leading this Bible study of young adults. I show up for the first time, uh, I show up to just hang out, meet some people, uh, hear, hear the Bible uh, taught. Um, I'm exchanging phone numbers with a dude, with a guy who is also new. He's looking for a roommate. We're, we're hitting it off. I mean, he's just like, a, man, this, this guy's going to be my roommate. Uh, this is a good bud. We're exchanging phone numbers. While we do that, this chick walks up in the middle middle of our conversation and rudely interrupts us and begins to make fun of us for exchanging phone numbers together, which I thought was pretty attractive. Like, oh, who's this girl? She's got a little spunk. And I was thinking to myself, one day I'm going to get your, uh, your phone number and you're going to be my permanent roommate. And that, that's my wife. That's Ashley. So that was, that was at, uh, that's at this little Bible study that Trevor was leading. So uh, I, think, I think I have to give credit uh, to Trevor for actually my marriage and these, and these, two, and these two girls. Uh, we are currently in the process of planting a new church in Wilmington, North Carolina called the Bridge Church. Um, we, it's, I was honestly, we, we aren't there yet. We're in the process of raising up a team of people. Um, I was hoping that we'd have like a dozen people signed up for this thing by the end of this, by the end of the year, by 2014, like, God, would you just give us a dozen people? And right now there's over 50 people that have signed up to be a part of our team, which is just un- unbelievable. Um, and so, uh, we're, we're raising up a team. We're getting ready to move to the city here in a few months. Um, Wilmington is a great city. Uh, it's a city in need of the gospel. And uh, we want to be a part of a gospel movement of what Jesus is doing and just preaching the gospel and sharing, sharing Jesus to as many people as we can. So um, I believe he's in it. I believe uh, uh, you guys are uh, encouraging us. Um, you're helping us. I didn't even reach out to y'all. Trevor reached out to me and said, hey, we want to help you. And so I cannot express my gratitude to City Church and to, to what you are doing. Well, the first Wednesday of February is a very important day in the lives of hundreds of college athletes. On that first Wednesday, hundreds of college athletes will make a decision that will directly influence their lives for the next four years and then indirectly for the rest of their lives. We'll determine who their leaders are. We'll determine where they're going to live, who they're going to meet, who their friends are going to be, probably who their spouse is going to be. On this one day, they make the decision that will determine the direction of their destiny. For those of you who are 
football fans, this would be uh, signing day, national signing day for NCAA college football. They make a decision. They sign up uh, for a decision that's going to change their lives for the next few years and for the rest of their lives. Um, how, many, how many of you ever signed up for something and you're like, what did I sign up for? You like didn't know what you were getting into. How, how many of you uh, made the mistake of signing up to be the president of your HOA? And you're like, um, I signed up for this thing. They asked me to be the president, and so I said yes, and now everyone in the neighborhood complains to me because, because their, their neighbor's yard doesn't look right. And you're like, why in the world did I sign up for that? How about getting married? Some of you, you're like, you, you thought marriage, this is going to be like a long eternal date where we're just going to be in, in just joyful bliss for the rest of our lives, and you're living in the same house with a sinner, and you want to kill yourself. You're like, what in the world is going? Any of you have that kind of experience in marriage? My marriage isn't quite that bad, but there's moments where I'm like, my goodness, this is hard. I thought it was supposed to be easy. Like, I didn't know what I was signing up for. Uh, or how about kids? Some of, you, some of you mothers, you're like, the sleepless nights. I did not know what I was getting into. My wife, she's just coming out of the end of that. We've, we've got a five-month-old. And so basically for four months, she didn't get a full night's sleep. And, and, and I have to be extremely gracious, you know. Take a nap, baby. Take a nap. Whenever you want to take a nap, you just take a nap. I didn't realize uh, maybe what you were signing up for, or, or maybe, maybe you enlisted in the military. Like, yeah, I'd be a part of the military. You show up for training, and you're like, wow, okay, I didn't realize what I was signing up for. Today, we're going to look at a passage in Luke 5, which is, in essence, signing day for the first disciples of Jesus, for the first ones that are going to follow Jesus and that are going to sign up to be a part of what he's doing. This is the day that will redefine the lives of several men. And for the rest of their lives, they will remember this very day. All right? So you're with me, Luke 5? We'll go ahead and start in verse 1. Luke 5 and verse 1. This is what it says. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, this is Jesus, in on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This passage falls at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. At this point, he doesn't have any official disciples, um, but he's as popular as a rock star because he's basically the combination of a food pantry, a walking health clinic, and an exorcist. And so whenever you have all those things in combination, a lot of people want to follow you and want to see what's going on. And, And so he's got a huge crowd that is around him. And then to add on to that, he's basically rebuking all the other pastors of his day. Like the religious leaders, he's contradicting everything that they're saying and so all the other pastors really hate him, all right? And so everybody's like, who's this Jesus guy? I got to hear what he's got to say. So understandably, there is a crowd that is around Jesus. And in this scene, there are so many people around him, it would be like uh, being at Times Square on New Year's Eve trying to hold a Bible study. It's like, there's way too many people. It's, it's not going to happen. And Jesus, he's, he's got too many people. He's trying to teach. He's trying to preach, and it's just not working out. All right, now he's at the Lake of Gennesaret which is the same uh, name for the Sea of Galilee, which you may have heard of if, if you have any familiarity with the Bible. So same lake, two names. It's actually a rather large body of water. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's, it's why it's called the Sea of Galilee. And so it's on the northeast part of Israel, which is uh, home to the fishing industry for that entire region. Look with me in verse 2. Verse 2 says, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. 
So in addition to the crowd, there is a group of fishermen who just returned to the shore after a long trip, and they're in the process of cleaning their nets. So if you're a fisherman, you know one of the hardest parts about fishing is the cleaning up part afterwards. Cleaning up is the most tedious part of fishing. There's grime and fish scales and seaweed that gets all over your gear, and it's just hours and hours of cleaning up, ready for getting ready for the next day. And these guys are commercial fishermen. So, how many, how many fishermen do we have in the room? All right. Not many, how, how many hipsters do we have in the room? Okay, okay. Quite, quite, quite a few more. Okay, so listen closely. I'm going to explain a little bit about fishing to you. Um, my dad absolutely loves to fish. I mean, he would, he's not a commercial fisherman. He lives actually in Myrtle Beach, um, South Carolina. We grew up fishing all the time. And not only does he love to fish, he's a really good fisherman. So that means we, we caught a lot of fish. I think this is actually why that he decided to have three boys, all right, to have so many kids. All right, so basically when we would get done fishing, there would be like this assembly line in the backyard. He had this own sink set up with a water hose with a bucket of fish. One of us would take him out and clean it. The next one would scale it. The next one would fillet it and then put it away. And so for hours, Hours afterwards, we would have to clean up, and this we almost didn't want to go fishing because at the end, you're going to have to spend a couple hours cleaning up, all right? So this is, this is these fishermen. They're, they're in the cleaning up process afterwards. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, this is Jesus, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And as he sat down and taught the people from the boat, Which, I love this. Jesus, he's so slammed by the crowd uh, that he doesn't even have enough room to preach. He hops into one of the boats without even asking permission, tells him to push him off from the shore, sits down, and preaches a sermon. Which, I've been trying to justify a reason for having a boat in Wilmington, and I think I just found my verse. That's like my new life verse. And then this is Simon's boat. So this, this boat belongs to a guy named Simon. Simon also goes by the name Simon Peter, and in most of the New Testament, he's just referred to as Peter, sometimes as Simon Peter. So this is the very first scene that we have of this guy named Peter in the book of Luke. In the previous chapter, chapter 4, uh, there's a scene where Jesus shows up at Peter's house. His mother-in-law is there. She is uh, sick almost into death, and he heals her right on the spot, along with a few other dozen people. And I just have to uh, imagine that Peter hears about this, hears about this guy named Jesus who shows up, heals his mother-in-law on the spot the previous scene, and now Jesus is in this guy's boat. All right, verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, let your nets down for a catch. So Jesus ends his sermon, and he feels like going fishing. Uh, but didn't he, didn't he see them cleaning their nets? Uh, doesn't he know that they're already packing up their gear? Uh, doesn't he know that they're already done and won't be going back until the next day? So why is Jesus so eager to fish? He's like Bill Dance on a Saturday morning. It's like, Jesus, what's the deal with, with going fishing? Why do you want to go so much? And then, Jesus, you're not a fisherman. You're a construction worker for crying out loud. I mean, you're like way out of your league. I mean, like Paris Hilton at a spelling bee. I mean, like Jesus, like, what are you doing here? I mean, we're the fishermen. You're not a fisherman. Why in the world are we going to go fishing? These guys are professionals. This is all they do. They fish for a living. I mean, fishing has probably been in their family for generations. Their dads were fishermen. Their, gr- their granddads were fishermen. Their great-granddads were fishermen. And so, I mean, if we're talking about wood, but why, then by all means, Jesus, yes, we'll do what you say. But we're talking about fishing. We're not going to do what you say. Verse 5. 
And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. I want to draw attention to this uh, title that Simon Peter uses to speak to Jesus. He calls him Master. And so throughout Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't use the word rabbi like some of the other gospel writers use, which is another word for the teacher. He is like the master teacher. And so when Peter says master, he's recognizing that Jesus is, he's the rabbi. He is the teacher. And this will be important for a few verses later. And Simon Peter goes on to say that we toiled all night long. The Greek word here also could be translated, we were suffered. We suffered in weariness all night long, and we didn't catch a single fish, Jesus. The fish aren't biting. We didn't catch anything, nothing, not a zip. Doesn't Jesus know that this is a hopeless scenario? Doesn't he know that fish don't bite in the middle of the day? Morning is the best time to fish for those of, well, you don't have fishermen. Fishing, fishing, the best time is the morning. Jesus wants to go out in the middle of the day. And though Peter completely disagrees with Jesus, and though he has a pretty lame attitude about it, which I would as well, notice that Peter obeys Jesus and gets in the boat. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing that I think that we need to understand about following Jesus. This is number one. Number one, following Jesus is always more costly than convenient. Following Jesus is always more costly than convenient. Every single one of you has come or will come to a crossroads in your life where following Jesus will not be the easy road. Culturally, I don't know if you knew this, but Christianity, it's no longer cool to be a Christian in America. I don't know if you knew that or not. But culturally, Christianity is being pushed to the margins where it's no longer cool and acceptable to be able to say that I am a follower of Jesus. You get a weird, like, deer in the headlights look. You're following who? A guy named Jesus, you know, who most of our culture probably doesn't even think that he existed. I'm following a guy named Jesus. It's going to cost you culturally to identify with a man named Jesus Christ. It's going to cost you relationally. Some of you are going to lose relationships. It's going to cost you a boyfriend or girlfriend when you become a Christian. It may cost you your family. Your family may disown you, may turn away from you, may shun you, because now you're excited and passionate about a guy named Jesus, and they may not be as excited as you, and that may cost relationships. It's going to cost you financially. Before you were a Christian, you could spend your money however you wanted to. You could buy whatever you wanted to buy. You could just go out and do whatever you wanted to do. And then Jesus shows up in your life. And Jesus, he requires not only your church attendance, not only your your community group attendance, not only your passion and your zeal, he also requires your wallet. And Jesus requires of us financially. And you know the truth of the matter is, is that if, if you're not invested into something financially, um, you're really not invested into it at all. It's like if you go on a date. You take, the, you take this girl out on, on a date. You show up and at the end of dinner. You say, two checks, please. Like, what are you, t- dude, what are you talking about? You just went on a date. Are you not going to pay for her meal? If you're not even willing to pay out of your own pocket, amen, ladies? If you're not willing to pay for the meal, you don't even need to be on a date with her, all right? If you're not even willing to give of your finances for this chick, you really don't care about her at all. 
And it's going to cost you financially. You've just gone through a season here of, of, of giving through a, a December Christmas offering where you gave out of your wallets and out of your money for the sake of the gospel for Jesus. And being, being a Christian and following Jesus, it costs you financially. And there's going to be other times where your leadership stands up in front of you and says, this is what I feel God, this is what we believe God has for us. It's going to cost us X amount of dollars in order to do this. In order for the mission to go forward, it's going to cost, and we need you to step up to the plate. And that doesn't, psych, that doesn't weird us out. That's like, yeah, that's what Jesus is calling us to. Because following Jesus, it's always more costly than it is convenient. Jesus says this in Luke fourteen twenty seven. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? You know what I love about Jesus? Jesus, he sets the bar high. A lot of us, we have a tendency in relationships or maybe in, in our organization, maybe in your company to, to set the bar low. Jesus sets the bar high. He wants you to recognize the cost of following him. You may be familiar with, um, w- with a story recently of, um, there's a guy named Ronnie Smith who was, um, he was just an average church person, kind of like you. He lived in Texas. He was, he was a part of the Austin Stone Community Church. I don't know if you're familiar with that church in Austin. Um, we have a pretty good relationship with the church there. And he was just an average member who felt the call that he should live his life for the gospel foreign, internationally, somewhere that would be a little risky. So he's, he's a 28-year-old guy, married as a little boy, three years old, moves his family across the world to Libya, lives in a city named Benghazi, in order to teach at a high school and then to, to be a witness for the sake of the gospel. About four weeks ago, he was killed and shot not far from his home because he was a Christian. It cost him his life to follow a man named Jesus. And it would be remiss if I said that Christianity was comfortable. I would be doing you a disservice if I said Christianity is easy. The gospel is easy. Because the reality is is that there may be people in this room who in the next few years, maybe months, will lose your life for the sake of the gospel. And is it worth it? Because following Jesus is always more costly than it is convenient. I love what David Platt says. He says, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things. Following Jesus, it's always more costly than it is convenient. Look with me in verse 6. He goes on to say, verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the fishermen on the boat? You're there, you're on the boat, you're angry, you're mad, you're ill. Peter just said, okay, Jesus, we'll go fishing. You had to get in the boat, you had to go. You're standing there, and one of the guys, one of the guys holding the nets, he says, guys, I think, I think a fish just 
I think a fish just went to my. You're like, come on, man. We're out here. We're, it's the middle of the day. I mean, we're already out. Stop playing around. He's like, no, I'm serious. The net is tugging. I, I think a fit. I think a fish just swam into the net, and so he's. And, and then he feels it again. He's like, guys, there are fish swimming into my net. And so the others come over, and, and it begins to be so heavy, and so many fish are in this that they can't even take the net and pull it into the boat. And they start putting the fish in the boat, and there's so many fish that the other boat has to come, and they have so many fish in the boat that it says that they actually began to sink. I have a, I have a story of when I was in middle school, we would go catfish gigging. I don't, you probably don't know what catfish gigging is. I'm seeing a pattern here. Um, so catfish gigging is this awesome, all right, it is the most manly thing I think I've ever done in my life. All right, so you get on a boat, you go at night, at Lake Santee, there's a long dam, and catfish like to uh, nestle themselves up in the rocks uh, throughout the night, and they rest there. And so we would put these huge spotlights on the front of the boat, had this big pontoon boat, you know, with the flat deck, we got five or six guys on it, and we're, we're going along at night, just Spearing catfish. I mean, it is like the most awesome manly thing that you can do. And we're getting these catfish and putting them in the boat. We've got several coolers. The coolers, there's so many catfish, the coolers are now overflowing. And there are catfish that are like flapping on the boat. But we can't stop. I mean, you're like, you're in the middle of fishing like that. You're like, man, we really got to keep going. So we get more and more catfish. Well, it's time to go home. It's like three in the morning. We begin to go forward, and the front of the boat literally starts to go under the water. And we began to sink the boat. And so everyone had to come to the back of the boat. And we had to go like three miles an hour all the way back to the house. I can imagine being on a boat, being on a boat, and it's like it's about to sink because there are so many fish. These guys, these guys are completely stunned. Everyone on the boat was completely stunned in sheer amazement of what just happened. This would have been the best day of fishing that they had ever experienced. This would, have be, would be the day that would go down in the record books. This would be the legendary day that they would share for decades and decades to come, that they would sit down with their grandkids and tell them about the day that they went fishing with Jesus. I don't know if Jesus is actually helping out, or maybe he's sitting on the bow of the boat just watching, got a little grin on his face, but can you imagine uh, the fishermen looking at each other? And like looking over at Jesus and being like, who is this guy? They had been fishing every day almost of their lives. And they go at the wrong time with the wrong circumstances. And nothing is right about it. But Jesus is in the boat. Can you imagine them looking at each other being like, who is this guy? Here's the second thing I think that we need to understand from this about following Jesus. Number two, following Jesus is the difference maker in every aspect of your life. Following Jesus is the difference maker in every aspect of your life. Jesus did in 30 seconds what these professional fishermen could not do in 30 years. Notice that none of the circumstances were right. It was a hopeless scenario. It shouldn't have gone that way. But what was the difference maker? Jesus was in the boat. And when Jesus is in the boat, your circumstances aren't the determining factor for your joy, for your satisfaction, for your fulfillment, and for your happiness when Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is, if I could say, the X factor in every part of your life. Jesus is the X factor for your marriage. Like Ethan, the circumstances aren't right in my marriage though. We don't, we're having a tough time. The kids aren't cooperating. 
My, maybe you're in college. The grades aren't going well. I'm not getting along with my professors or it's not really panning out the way that I thought it would be. My best friends are starting to disown me. It's not, it's not working out, Ethan. Jesus is the X factor. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are in your, in your life, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a career, whether it's a marriage. Jesus is a difference maker in every aspect of your life. Jesus is the X factor in this church. It doesn't matter how well-oiled of a machine this church plant is. It doesn't matter what your building looks like. It doesn't matter how great it is. It doesn't matter how cool it is. It doesn't matter how many people are sitting in these seats. If Jesus is here, if Jesus is present, it doesn't matter what the building looks like. It doesn't matter how many people are here. It doesn't matter what the music sounds like. If Jesus is in it, something's going to happen. If Jesus is in it, the church is going to reach people. If Jesus is in it, you're going to change your city. And I want to be a church, I want to be a part of a church where Jesus is in it. I want to be a church that's not known for its cool music, that's not known for its building, that's not known for its awesome kids program. I want to be a part of a church that's known that Jesus is there and Jesus is in what we're doing. Because when Jesus is in it, he is the difference maker in every aspect of your life. There's a, there's a guy, um, there's a guy who's just recently joined our church planning team. Um, and I won't share his name, but he, he recently came to faith within the last year. And he tells a story of how his life was marked and scarred by abuse, uh, by, by ruin, by emptiness, by dissatisfaction. He had everything that you would think that he would need on the outside. He, he had a great job working for um, a pharmaceutical company, uh, making a decent salary. He's got a wife, a beautiful wife. They had a kid. I mean, everything looked right on, on the outside. And he tells a story, he came to the point where he was ready to just end his life and to give it all up because he didn't see the purpose in living. His wife throughout this time, she was a believer and would send him sermons through email. She'd be at church, she'd hear a sermon, be like, I wish my husband would listen to this. She'd send him an email, he's, he's not there at church with her. Shoot him an email, hope that he would listen to it. He, he never listened to any of them. He gets to this point where he's ready to end his life, and he thinks, maybe I, should, maybe I should listen to one of these sermons that my wife sent. He pulls up his email and clicks on one. And it's the story of the prodigal son. And the preacher that day preached about a man who had all that you could want, and had everything that you could need, and came to a point in his life where it was all empty. It was all empty. It was all vain because he didn't have Jesus in his life. And he tells a story that night, listening to that sermon, gives his life to Jesus. And his circumstances of his life have not changed. He still has the same job, same wife, same kids, same house. What's the change? What's the difference maker? Jesus is in his life. This is a guy who absolutely loves people now. He loves his job. He loves his, his coworkers. He loves his wife. For the first time, he really enjoys uh, communicating and hanging out with his wife. He loves his kids. He didn't have a dad that would, that would show him what it was like to be a, a good father. And he now absolutely loves his kids because Jesus is the difference maker in your life. Jesus is the difference maker. Look with me in verse 8. Verse 8, but when Peter, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, and notice the words that he uses, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. This is an interesting response at first, isn't it? 
Why doesn't Peter jump up, celebrate because they've caught all these fish? Why wouldn't he be happy? Why wouldn't he like high-five Jesus, snap a quick selfie with Jesus, post it online? This is like the greatest fishing day ever. Why does he fall down at Jesus' feet and call him Lord? And to really understand what's happening here, we have to understand something greater that's happening throughout the Bible. Uh, Throughout the Bible, there are unique and special moments where God would reveal himself to people in Scripture. Theologians call these moments a theophany. Great theological word for you to use at lunch today. A theophany. A theophany is a form of divine revelation which God's presence is made visible, recognizable, and perceptible to man. All right, so Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, uh, God gives Isaiah the ability to see into the throne room of heaven to actually be able to see God. This is what he says in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How about Moses? We see another theophany in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is just a random shepherd attending to his flock, hanging out with a bunch of sheep, and God shows up and appears to him in a burning bush. And then verse 4 says, When the Lord saw, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And catch this, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. How about Gideon? Gideon, he was called out by God to be a judge and a warrior for God's people. And we read this in Judges chapter 6. When Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. This is number three. This is the third point I think we need to understand about following Jesus. Number three, following Jesus starts with seeing him, not serving him. Following Jesus starts with seeing him, not serving him. Up until this point, Peter viewed Jesus as an interesting rabbi who taught good morals and created a decent following. But on the boat, Peter's eyes are opened to see who Jesus really is. The God in the Old Testament who spoke to Isaiah, who revealed himself to Moses, who called out Gideon, was standing face to face with Peter. And at this recognition, Peter fell at Jesus' feet, acknowledging his own sinfulness and confessing along with Isaiah, Moses, and Gideon that Jesus is Lord. And this whole scenario is orchestrated by Jesus. This whole fishing trip, not because he wanted to break a new Guinness Book World Records for fishing, but rather because he wanted to reveal to these fishermen who he was. He wanted them to see. What about you? Has Jesus ever done this to you? Has he ever revealed your sinfulness and his holiness? Have you ever been wrecked over your sin? Has there ever been a time where you fell at Jesus' knees? 
in recognition of your sinfulness and His holiness, have you ever met Jesus? I think what most of us need at the beginning of this year, more than a resolution, I believe we need a revelation. More than a resolution of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this for God, I'm going to show up, I'm going to be this person, I'm going to do better, I'm going to show up at church, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to do all these things for Jesus, I think you need to first have a revelation of what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus came to earth, came in human flesh, lived a life that you could not live, a life of perfection, that met every requirement of God's law. He lived the life that you couldn't live. And then he went to a cross to die the death that you should have died and that I should have died. And then he conquered the grave that you could not conquer and that I could not conquer. And following Jesus doesn't start with signing up on a list to serve. Following Jesus doesn't sign up, isn't signing up for a service team that I'm going to show Jesus that I'm good. Following Jesus starts with seeing who Jesus is, that he is good, that he has come, that he has done everything necessary to save you. Following Jesus starts with seeing him, not serving him. Then verse 10. Verse 10 says, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men which you must agree sounds a little weird, right? I mean, if, if you're Peter, if you're James, if you're John, you're like, do what? Catch, uh, hold on. Catching men? Jesus, look at the fish. Je- I mean, Jesus, we just caught a boatload of fish, literally, and then now we're going to be catching men? What are you talking? Are you losing it? I mean, this is great. Why don't we just do this tomorrow? I mean, this, I could really get on board with this, Jesus. What are you talking about? We're going to be catching men. And then verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. This is the last point, number four. Following Jesus requires unfollowing all others. Following Jesus requires unfollowing all others. How many of you are on Twitter? You're not the Twitter, you're on Twitter. Uh, so I'm on Twitter and I follow a few people, you know, a few dozen people. And I can see what they're doing. I can, I can you know, if Trevor's saying, you know, hey, I'm going to the bathroom, I can see that. You know, I can, I can follow him. I can see what he's reading. I can see where he's going. I can see what City Church is doing. I can see what Rick Warren is doing. I can see what President Obama is doing. You know, I can do any of that stuff just, just on Twitter. Now, it gets to a point where I really don't like following some people. You, for those of you on Twitter, it's like that dude, that guy who, who tweets like 47 times a day, and you're like, come on, man. No one wants to know all your business. All right, just, just give us the headlines. We don't need to see all that stuff. And then I can click unfollow, which is actually pretty gratifying. I'm like, I just gave you the unfollow, dude. All right, so Jesus, following Jesus, it requires unfollowing all others. Jesus doesn't show up to our lives and say, hey, could you just add me onto your agenda? Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, hey, I'm Jesus. Could you just fit me in? Like, maybe just like once a week. If you could just fit me in, if I could just fit me into your life, that, that would be great. I just, you don't have to, you don't really have to give anything. You don't really have to be devoted or committed. If you just add me to what you're already doing, that would be, that would be great. Following Jesus isn't, isn't adding him. Following Jesus, it's unfollowing all others and following him. Whatever your previous mission was, Jesus has a new mission for you. 
Whatever your previous ambitions were about your own life and your own kingdom, so to speak, Jesus has a new kingdom. But to Christians, to those who have met Jesus, to these disciples in the boat, they willfully and eagerly left everything that they had to follow Jesus. To them, it wasn't a sacrifice. They left their careers. They left their job. They left their source of income to follow a guy named Jesus. There's a story of a wealthy plantation owner a few, a few decades ago back in the slave trade industry of the United States where a wealthy plantation owner showed up to the, slave, to the, to the auction block to buy a slave girl. And there with, with multiple other slave, um, slaves on the auction block and multiple, multiple other plantation owners. This particular plantation owner, he wanted one person. He wanted a young girl. This was a young girl who had never had a family, had, had, had been abused, had been, had been treated um, harmfully by other different owners. She was back at the auction block one more time to be sold for a price to serve, to, uh, to, to serve some other plantation owner. And this day, this particular day, the plantation owner, he pays the highest price for more than anybody for, for this girl. He pays higher than anyone else did uh, to get this girl so that, that, he could, that he could have her. And he purchases her, and then on the way back to the plantation, as they're going back, what no one recognized there and what she didn't recognize, that this man was named Abraham Lincoln. And on the way back to the plantation, he looks to the girl, looks over and says, "Uh, young lady, you are free. And she was quite confused and said, well, what does that mean? He said, it means you are free. Well, does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? And Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Well, does that mean that, that I can be whatever I want to be? He said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, does that mean that I can go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the girl, with tears streaming down her face, said, then I will go with you. She had never experienced someone that would pay a price to set her free. And when receiving that gift of freedom, she willfully and joyfully gave herself back to the owner because she would never experience love from anyone else like this man. She would never experience grace. She would never experience a home like this man had. And she said, then I will be with you. You see, we were on the auction block. You were on the auction block. You were the slave that could not free yourself, that did not have the resources, the money, the righteousness to free yourself of your sin. And Jesus showed up as the wealthy plantation owner and not only paid the highest price, he gave his life. He gave his life so that you could be free. And in response, in response to the gospel, in response to the freedom that Jesus gives us, we give our lives to him completely. If you are God, if you are Jesus, if you are the Lord, if you've given your life for me, then I'm going to give my life back to you. Whatever I was doing previously, whatever mission I had, whatever goals, whatever aspirations I had in my life, you came, you entered human history and died on the cross for me. I'm giving my life to you. And the only appropriate response to the gospel is to drop everything and follow him. 
Is your life characteristic of dropping everything and following Jesus? Maybe, maybe not. If not, you don't need to try harder. You need to see. You need to see. You need to see what Jesus has done for you. And when you see, you will give your life to him. Let's pray. God, I want to be a man. I want to be a man. I want to be a pastor. I want to be a husband. I want to be a Christian who is defined by seeing Jesus. And at the end of the day, more than anything that, that I want for our church plant and for my marriage, I want to be able to see Jesus because Jesus is the difference maker in every aspect of our lives. There's some people here today, God, um, their lives aren't characteristic of, of selling all, giving all, and following you. And I pray today that they would do that. I pray at this new year, uh, I pray that they'd be able to see, have a revelation of who you are. And in response to that revelation, would give their all to you. I ask that you would do that. I ask that you would give us that grace. I ask this all in the good name of Jesus. Amen.